is yet another dimension that is beyond that which is familiar to us. A dimension that is as vast as the universe itself and free of the bonds of time. It is the ground where light and dark were born, where science and superstition are close relatives, and it resides somewhere between the pit of our fears and the summit of hope itself. This is the dimension above our own, divided by nothing more than the air we breathe. It's here, now. Welcome to Spooktacular. His name is Ezekiel. He spent his time on this earth experiencing incredible visions. He was a man who saw that which is beyond our scope of understanding. A man whom God had chosen to share his divine truths with truths that leave many of us unsettled or laden with fear by that which we do not understand. A man who spoke of a faith that could save those who were once gripped by doom itself. The time is somewhere near the 6th century BC. The Jewish people have been exiled to a new empire called Babylon. God is at work through the lives of the few who are faithful to him. Many of them are referred to as prophets. We find our man hearing of the impending death that stalks those wicked people who seek justification in the eyes of man. His mind set on sharing the message sent to him from the realm above our own in hopes that it's not too late for truth to wash away mud from the eyes of his people. We are doing a uh, deep dive into the book of Ezekiel, which is itself a uh, uh, ominous text. Uh, there's just, it's, it's very deep. Uh, and uh, at times it is uh, creepy, and at times it is uh, violent. Uh, and today, uh, God is going to be uh, speaking through the prophet, and it's going to be more about sharing uh, uh, vision and then correcting vision. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, and, and I've titled today's message, The Principle of the Matter, and that is the idea of getting down to exactly what it is that we understand and who it is that we believe. So, because we have a lot to cover, and I am going verse by verse as much as I can through this, we're going to go ahead and get started. Ezekiel chapter 17, beginning here in verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord came to me. So each time that there's a break in the visions, and I'll just remind you, and this is a good reminder. I've been doing it every week. This doesn't take place all in a couple of days. This takes place over, his, over the span of Ezekiel's life. Uh, right now, we are in probably about a 10-year span so far uh, between the first visions that he's seen and where we're at now. And the reason that that matters is because as children of God, we can hear from God, we can experience God, and then we can become frustrated and impatient because, you know, it's been five years, God, and this thing that you said isn't happening and I'll just remind you that you're not unique in that area, that it is not uncommon for God to speak and then in somebody's life, it'd be decades before he shows up and fulfills that thing which he spoke. And, and, and I will add this, that it's the same for the prophecies that the prophets bring to the people. Oftentimes, God brings warning for sometimes generations. And so you, you can have decades and decades and decades of a warning going out to the people and the people ignoring it to the point where they just begin to go, ah, that's just that, that's just that old way of thinking. And then when God shows up, he says, I have been trying to prepare you. I've been trying, I've been slow to wrath. I've been trying to uh, be, be, be patient and you haven't been listening. And so just, just as a reminder that sometimes these things don't happen immediately. And so here we are again, Ezekiel is having another encounter with the Lord. Verse two, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. I decided to do you a favor in case you weren't familiar with the word because I was not. What does propound mean? Propound is to put forward an idea, a theory, or a point of view for consideration by others. And so he says, son of man, propound a riddle, put this riddle forward, and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So 
This word parable, if you uh, have spent any time in the New Testament, is probably a term that you're familiar with. In fact, we oftentimes think in terms of parables as being those little short uh, stories that Jesus taught from in the New Testament, but yet we find them throughout all of Scripture as as a means of communicating truth, right? So Jesus used these parables pretty frequently, and I know that the question that kind of comes into our mind is, well, why a parable? Well, we weren't the only ones that thought that. In fact, a group of people asked Jesus this in Matthew chapter 13. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So this is what he says. He says that I I openly speak the parable. I openly to everybody share this this story, but there will be some, and for, for in this moment, it's those disciples, there will be some who come and want to understand what it means. And it's those that come and say, God, what does this mean that the revelation, that the answer comes to, but it's those that hear it and go, well, you know, that's just beyond my understanding. It's that's a deep thing. It's it's just not for me. They're the ones that won't have understanding. Verse 12, and for to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Most commentators break this down to to be this idea that there is a group of people among the believers who do not want to go very deep. They do not want to have understanding because they believe that ignorance is bliss. They believe that the the less I know about it, the less accountability I have in the situation. Verse 14, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes uh, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them." And so because of that mindset that says, I don't want to go deep, I don't want to have that understanding, I'm not coming and pursuing it, that that group of people does not receive the fullness of healing that God has for them. Verse 16, but blessed are you, are, are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So we are six to 700 years after Ezekiel, Jesus is teaching in parables and that there is a group of disciples, those that are close to him, they're following him. And this does exceed the 12 that we see. We understand that there were more than 12 that were disciples following Christ, but there were 12 that he had appointed that were the closest. They're the ones that we get the most insight from. But there's a group of people who want to have understanding and God speaks to them. Jesus speaks and says, hey, it's just like Isaiah said, that there are those who, who long for understanding, and then there are those who don't. And those that long for it, they get it. And this is the, the kind of the cry of my heart for you today, is that you would be somebody who wants understanding, that you want to have discernment, that you want to be able to look at what is happening in the world around you and have God's understanding and God's wisdom and vision for the situation. So from this point forward, Jesus would only explain the parables he taught to those who were his disciples. And throughout the the remainder of the Gospels, from that moment, anytime he gave a parable, the only time that he broke it down was when he was with his disciples. Now, John chapter 16, verse 12, just to kind of tack on to this understanding idea, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
And, and so, so Jesus says that I have been here now as I've, you've had access to me to give you understanding and that access is not going to be taken away from you, right? The voice is going to be different because it's the spirit that's going to come now and be in you. And if you will seek understanding, God will make sure that the spirit speaks his words to you. You will have, you will continue to have access to understanding. And sometimes that means that it's going to take a little bit of time for you to get the fullness of that understanding because there are times where revelation takes time, where getting the understanding of what's happening requires going deeper and deeper and deeper. It requires more and more conversation. It's not just a, hey, God, what should I do in this situation? Oh, yeah, great. Okay, I'll do it. But there's something about gaining really deep understanding, and that's kind of that idea of wisdom. That The Scripture says that he's faithful to give wisdom if we just ask for it. It's that one thing that God will definitely give when we ask for is wisdom. And so, so having understanding is important. So he's telling Ezekiel, right, here in chapter 17, he's telling him, he says, hey, I, I want you to, to give them a parable. And what do we understand about it? We understand that some will hear the parable and will want to know what it means, but others will just go, nah, it's no big deal. So verse three, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside the abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and it became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. Verse seven. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine Say, say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves will wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Verse 10, behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it, where it sprouted? So what is the meaning of it, right? You have this picture of this eagle who comes and this vine that sprouts. Its roots are in one place but it's growing towards another place, but then it sees another area that it thinks is more fertile and the vine begins to twist and turn and make its way over there. And God says that because it has done this, it will not take much for it to be uprooted. So somebody hears this and they think to themselves, why does this matter? Or maybe out of their own understanding and their own wisdom, they begin to try to interpret what it means. Uh, and, and so what does God do? God gives Ezekiel the interpretation. And so let's take a look at this here. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And so God says this is an image of what is and has happened even now, where we're at right now in Jerusalem. And he reminds them that that eagle, right, the eagle from verse three, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he has come, he has come in and he has carried away King Jehoiakim and the nobles. So he's taken them away. And so God says that this is, this is the image that I was giving you. Verse 13, and he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief uh, men of the land he had taken away 
this is uh, Hedekiah that he puts in place. Verse 14, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can anyone escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? So in verse six, we had this picture of the vine and it's leaning uh, one way, but its roots are remaining. And what God says is God says, Judgment came, and I still continue to bless you because of the covenant that we had, and I allowed for a remnant to stay in Jerusalem. While many were taken into captivity, I continued to do what I said I would do, and your roots were allowed to stay where they were. And like a vine, the, the, the condition was that you were going to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. So you got to stay in your home, you got to stay and maintain your businesses, but you were paying a tax to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and in the midst of this, your new king did not like this. And so he reached out to another kingdom, Egypt, and he said, hey, I need horses. I need to raise up an army. Why? Because the hope was that they would overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath uh, he despised and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and did not and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke, I will return it upon his head. So what does he say? He says that the, 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 the understanding of this parable is not just that the king was rebelling, rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, but he was actually rebelling against God, that God was in the covenant that had been created between this contract between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. So Zedekiah failed to see that God was in the commitment he made to Nebuchadnezzar. The importance of this, and, and, and let me just bring this to practical application for us, is that sometimes we find ourselves in, in commitments that we do not want to be in. And because we do not want to be in them, we can, one, look for a, uh, we, can, we can justify that our emotions and the reason that we feel this way, that we don't want to be in it, becomes the, the, the reason why we should kick it to the curb. Or we can go and find people who will tell us that we should kick it to the curb. But do we ever stop and ask God the question, why am I here? And if Zedekiah had done that and he had sought out real godly counsel, God says what would have been revealed to him was, you are here because God has placed you here. So instead of being in the, the place that God had for him, which was uncomfortable, admittedly, what he did was he, along with false teachers and prophets and all of those that would say exactly what he wanted to hear, made a scheme to come and overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. And when, they, when that scheme was made known, they were decimated. It would cost Zedekiah his life. And God is he's trying to help the children of Israel understand that you're in this situation because of decisions that you made. I'm going to be with you, but you're going to walk through the consequences of your decisions. Is this not what we, what we instill in our children, right? Is this not something that we just kind of natively get that we, that we would tell our kids like, hey, I asked you to do this thing. You did the opposite. There are consequences for it. And we're going to walk through those consequences together, but there's going to be consequences. Like, like good parenting operates like that. My, my mom and dad, I, I, 
I, I, I ask my kids all the time, right? Especially uh, 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 one in particular. Again, I'm not naming names, but I, I, we will we will say to to that child. I almost gave a gender away. It's three. It's three out of four boys. So I mean, it's 75 percent chance it's a dude, right? And uh, but but this particular one, we will we will tell them to do something, and and they are the one that will go nah, no. And then I always ask the same question. I'm like, hey, buddy, how often does that work out for you? Like, like how often do you go, no, I'm going to do it differently. And then mom and I are like, yeah, you're right. You're in charge. Uh, never. That doesn't ever happen, right? Okay, so now what happens to the consequences? The consequences now have gotten heavier. They've gotten worse. They, it was going to be this one little thing. Now it's going to be a week of that one little thing, right? See how in the dark I keep you on how we parent right here right now, right? And, and it can move from a week to a month. I, it's, 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 it, as my wife says, she just as soon burn it all, right? You know what I'm saying? She doesn't need it in her life, so why does it matter, right? And, and so the truth is, though, that there's that consequence. And then sometimes that consequence is inconvenient, right? Like you ground your child from, from TV, right? Or, 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 or video games or whatever it is, right? And then that's the thing that you let them do when you just need a moment of sanity to yourself, right? And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of needing that moment of sanity and you're thinking to yourself, can I just go back on my word and go, yeah, you can go watch TV. But, but the truth is, is that that's what it looks like to walk out the consequences with them. That's how you are building trust in the relationship. And so, yeah, sometimes it's just not convenient, right? But we continue to walk through it. And that's what God says. God says, look, these are the consequences, but I'm in it with you. Like I'm right here with you. And so when you tried to overturn this and go the opposite direction, not only were you trying to run from your consequences, but you were running from me because I wasn't in Egypt. I wasn't in that contract. I was in this one. Verse 20, he says, I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him. Therefore, the treachery he has committed against me and all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. He says this, he says, look, the, thing, the little plan that you have with Egypt is not going to work. And the, the consequences now, they're graver than they were before. In fact, Zedekiah, it's going to cost you your life. But I'm going to be right there with you. Those were his words. He says, I will be there with you. And so sometimes we walk through incredible consequences or through incredible struggles in this life. And we can so quickly just go, well, the devil's got me right now, right? We can give all the credit to the enemy uh, as to why we didn't get our favorite parking spot on Black Friday or why we did, they were out of our favorite type of food at the grocery store. We can get that petty, pointing it all to the enemy. And, 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 and God, inside of his scripture, constantly brings us to these moments, these stories where he says, maybe you're in this struggle because I'm with you. And sometimes it could be a consequence for your actions, but that's okay. God's walking through this with you. And sometimes it could just simply be that God has a plan and a purpose. Daniel, there was no consequence for him. Daniel was just in a difficult place. And who was with him through the entirety of his life? The father with him in every moment. Zedekiah's death, this marks the end of the Davidic line of kings. So Saul, uh, uh, Saul had been king, Saul died, and instead of his bloodline stepping in, David is brought in, and David becomes king, and, and there's a split, there's a divide between, uh, in the nation, so they end up with a, uh, the, the north and the south, it's Israel and Judah, ultimately that is brought back together, and throughout that entire time, there is this bloodline that continues, and it's the bloodline of David until this moment. And in this decision, the consequence was more than just simply Zedekiah dying, but this also ended the bloodline of the Davidic kings. 
But God says this will not be the end of this. Look here in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make the high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. So what does he do? He begins with a parable. He gives some understanding to the parable, that, 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 but his understanding ends with Zedekiah's death. And then he does what? He gives the continuation. He said, propound a riddle, right? So he, he, he brings forward this, this, this prophecy that doesn't make any sense. He says, Zedekiah will die, but, but there's going to be, I'm going to take just a, 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 a twig and I'm going to raise up right? From this, this, this one little sprig, I'm going to bring up a tree, and that tree will cover all different types of birds, right? And then there will be some trees that try to come up, and I'll take them down, but this tree will be the tree that covers all. And so this is, for us, a messianic uh, prophecy. This is a prophecy of God coming in the flesh, right? So Jesus comes from the bloodline of David, and Jesus is the final king. So from Zedekiah to Jesus, there's no Davidic, no Davidic king that comes back to the throne. Jesus comes on the scene, and remember that he's doing miracles, right? And, and things are happening, and what is he telling people? He says, hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Hey, go, keep this to yourself. It's not yet time for people to know. Now, we have the, the triumphal entry. People are beginning to go, hey, there's something about this guy in mass, right? Like people are flocking in. Revival is taking place. But there is a group of not secularists in the sense that we think today, but from within the church, there was a religious group that saw Jesus as a threat. And so what did they want to do? They wanted to see him destroyed. And so they ultimately are able to get him arrested and brought to Pilate, right? Right? And so Jesus is king, but nobody is going to acknowledge the kingship yet. Look here in John chapter 18 at this story of this interaction between Jesus and Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So he just, he just gets straight to it, right? He gets right into it. And he says, this is what it all comes down to. They are saying that you are trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, that you are going to try to take back Israel. I, are you calling yourself the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Are you asking this? Or are you asking this because this is the rumor that's going around? Are you asking because you want to know? Or are you asking to appease those that have pushed for me to be here? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? As if it really matters, right? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So he says, he says it's, it's a bit complicated because, I, because if I was the king of just a, of, a, of a normal natural order, then I would have subjects that would be at war with you right now. But there's, there's, I'm not of this world. It's it's probably going to be beyond your understanding because you haven't sought to understand this. He says that they would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, as if he's caught him, right? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says, you say that I am a king. So based on your understanding, however you want to package that, let me tell you, it's for that reason that I have come into the world. However you want to define it, this is why I am here. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? What was this about? Well, there was a, there was a belief that there was a, um, an unfairness sometimes to those that were arrested and those that were being put in prison. And so part of the deal was that at Passover, that if there was somebody who the, the Jews really believed was innocent, that had done nothing wrong, and even though the Roman Empire might be going, yes, they did wrong, they would, give up, they would let that person go. It was, a, it was a sign of goodwill. Why is that needed? That was needed because you have a Roman emperor, a Caesar, that is thousands of miles away, and he doesn't have a plane, right, a Gulf Stream to hop on and fly over and handle things. He has a chariot, and it takes months to get him there. And so in order to maintain the rule of the land, there were kings and governors that were established throughout the area. He needed to make sure that they were subject and loyal to him, and they needed to keep the people at peace. Because if there was an uprising, the, the amount of time it would take to move an army over gave that uprising plenty of time to be preparing and ultimately to establish their own armies. And there had been times, and we've looked at some of this, where those armies were successful at overthrowing kingdoms. And so because they had the historical evidence of this, they knew they needed to keep things at peace. And so what did they do? They, one of the ways that they did this Pilate said, we give over those, we give over someone back to you who there is, there's no guilt for them. And this was, a, this was an easy one, right? Because it had just been a few days before that he had come in riding on a donkey and people were singing Hosanna, 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 right? I mean, like there's an overwhelming sense that this is the guy. And, and then just 72 hours later, just it's, it's all flipped on its head. It's all falling apart. And he says, would you give this guy back to you? And look at what they say, they say here in verse 40. They cry out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And so what do they do? They say, Jesus is the king, but they want the thief. And so society says we would rather have the thief among us than the king, than the person we don't understand among us. Now, let's take this back into Ezekiel. And when we are there, Ezekiel is sitting here and he's, and he's writing out, he's communicating exactly what God says to say. And he says, Zedekiah is dead, but you need to understand that there is a king that is coming. And he, no matter what you do, is going to be victorious. And you're going to want him to fail. Even then, like, like it just doesn't matter how many times you walk through this cycle, you're just going to want him to fail. It reminds me of Stephen, right? The first martyr who comes out and they're like, you need to renounce this whole Jesus thing. And he's like, man, y'all are some stubborn people. Like you are generations of stubborn. Like every single time that God shows up to do something, you are resistant until it has happened. And then you go, oh yeah, that was totally God. And they don't want to hear that. So what do they do? They kill him. And Ezekiel's giving the same type of like, like truth to them. He's like, you just don't want to receive the truth. Now let's go into chapter 18, and, and the word of the Lord came to me. And so now, chapter 17, he gave them a, a parable, a riddle. He gave them some prophecy, right? And now he's going to address some, a, a, a parable or a, a proverb that they say to themselves, Right? Verse 2, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So, so God says, why, why do they say this thing? Have you, have you ever gotten a sour grape when you thought you were getting a sweet grape? 
right? You ever reached into the bowl in the fridge and thought, oh, grapes, and then what you actually got was like a muscadine. No, I guess those are even sweeter. I don't even know what they are. Something that's really sour, right? And when you're not expecting it and it just makes your teeth hurt, right? right? So this is what they say. They go, hey, it was those that came before us that got the sour grape, but we are the ones that reap the consequences of it with our teeth being set on edge. Verse three, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Now, this is, a, this is an, an, an issue that God has addressed, not just here in Ezekiel now, he addressed this in Jeremiah. And remember, they're contemporaries. They're prophesying at the exact same time about the exile into Babylon. So all of these, all of what they're saying, right, they're addressing the same group of people, even though they're divided, even though that now some of them are up in Babylon, some are still in Israel. They are, they are just a divided people that think the same way. They talk the same way because they come from the same people. And he says, I'm not going to have this anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And, and this is what he begins to address. He begins to address the victim mentality. And that is that it's not my fault. The consequences that I'm bearing are somebody else's fault. And, and he's going to go through this several times, and it's probably not a popular topic today. It wasn't a popular topic then. Because we can, as human beings, I think, just really believe certain things about ourselves, and we can re be resistant to God's instruction in our lives. I can be guilty of this. I just want to say that right here out of the gate. Verse 5, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity. I'll just point right here to this. Uh, you read that and you're like, why can't he eat on uh, top of the mountains? Uh, this is actually, there were, this is, the mountains were the common place for the temples. And so people would go up and eat meals at these temples to these other gods. It was a part of their way of worshiping. So they would make a sacrifice, right? And this is why God addresses this in the Old Testament. He says, not to eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. Up on the mountaintops at the temples, they would sacrifice these animals. They would take the leftover meat, and then people would, would eat. They would feast on it. And he says here, he says, don't go and engage in that type of uh, uh of behavior, verse 7, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits to robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man uh, and man, verse 9, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So this is what he says. He says, it's really simple, okay? This is not as complicated as you want to make it. So he puts out a list. I've simplified it for you. He says, be righteous. Do what is just and right based on what? The teachings of God, not the teachings of man. Don't sleep with anyone else's spouse. Probably a good idea, right? Do not oppress anyone. I think we can all get behind that. Pay your bills. That sounds pretty reasonable. Don't steal from people. Don't be a thief. That's another good one, right? Feed the hungry, right? This is something that we could get behind. Somebody's hungry, we should feed them. And then clothe the naked. I would say that, that given the fact that it is against the law to walk around our land with no clothes on, it's probably a good idea to make sure people have clothes. Don't help someone for the purposes of profit. Now, that one might be a little bit tricky. It says that if you identify somebody who's in need, don't go and help them so that it benefits you. Go and help them to help them. There's a difference in heart there. Maybe that's a check that some, sometimes we have to make. He says, don't practice injustice. Practice true justice. These get a little bit more complicated in, in how we actually define what justice is. He's going to talk about it in just a moment. And he says, obey what you've been told. 
And if you do these things, you will live. If you write down that list and you say every day, I'm going to do this to the best of my ability, guess what? Because you're walking in relationship with God and you're doing these things, you're practicing life this way, you gain life. This is what he tells him. He says, and so it's for you. It's for you. It's not because your dad did it. It's not because your granddad did it. It's because you did it. This is what he does here. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, if, the, if, if, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, so somebody takes this list to heart, they live righteous and holy, and they pursue God, and then they father a son who, who is violent, a shedder of blood, does any of these things. Though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, he goes through the whole list, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. So what does he say? Just to sum this up, the son gains no advantage for having a righteous father when it comes to his own personal sin. The advantage that he might have is that the word is put in him Deuteronomy teaches about the advantage that is given to the children of believers who are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? But if that is not the thing that happens, and they grow up and they despise the Lord and they are wicked, there's no advantage for them when it comes time to judgment. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all, these, all the sins that his father has done, he sees and does not do likewise. Again, he's going to break these things down over and over because he wants to make sure that they understand. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment." withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So, the son does not receive a disadvantage because of the sins of his father. Do, do, you ever, do, you ever, do you ever enter into conversation with people and do it this way? Like where you just, you just, you have the conversation, you go, okay, I think we're all on the same page, but I want to say it back to you one time just to make sure that we understand. And then sometimes you'll even go and write it down. Like, I know that we said it, but let's just write this thing down because I want to make sure you, you have got this. Like, that's exactly what's happening. Why, are, why is he repeating this thing over and over? And oh, let me just tell it to you from a little slightly different story. Just get, okay, now just in case you were going to try to come at it from this way, let's cover it. He's making sure that they understand that there are no advantages or disadvantages that fall on you in your own life for, you, for uh, when it comes to the consequences that you face for your behavior. It is going to set on you. Verse 19, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? This is what he says. He says, but you, I'm telling you how it works, but your response is constantly, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Why shouldn't the son pay the price for what his dad did? God says, I don't, I don't operate this way, but for some reason you want it to operate this way. When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. Hey, you're asking this question, but I want to tell you something. They're mine. They're not yours. Right? Can, can we be reminded of that? And when we're in relationship with God, that we are not, we do not belong to the world around us, but we belong to the Father, that we are his and that he is ours? Verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 
So this is a declaration from God to what his method of judgment is. If he's going to bring judgment, if he's going to exact justice, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be you based on your actions and your decisions. And, and can I tell you that that's true for me? I fully expect that one day I will stand before the creator of the universe and give an account for who I am. Now, what do I understand? I understand that, that there's reconciliation and that there's an abundance of grace that covers the multitude of sin in my life, right? But that's, that's God's sacrifice and payment over my sin, and that's my sin coming before my God. And then at the end of the day, no matter how hard I strive to know the Lord, I cannot be the covering for my children in that regard. One day when they become adults and they are in their own responsibility in that, 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 that relationship, it sets on them. It's not something that I even have to carry. It sets on them. Just as it does for my dad and my granddad, it sets on them. And it's the same for all of us here today. And we can get hung up in the weeds on this thing, or what we can do right here, right now, is, is, is get a, a mindset, a heart correction that says, God, I need you. I need to be in a relationship with you because I cannot save myself and nobody else is going to save me. I need to declare Jesus as king of my life. We're going to wrap up here very quickly, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. So what does he say? The same thing that he has said from the beginning, the same thing that Jesus says as he's going to the cross, right? There is forgiveness, and they're not, it's not forgiveness for someone else's sin. You're not praying for that. It is forgiveness for your sin. You become responsible for you in the relationship with God. And you're responsible to be the better person. And the, you're responsible to take those sins and transgressions to the Lord. David does that, Psalm 139. We talk about it from time to time. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And he's sitting here and he says, God, you know the depths of who I am. You were there in the beginning before I was formed in my mother's womb. You were present and engaged in my life. Like from the beginning, you knew what was going on. Even so, even so, search me and see if there's any wickedness inside of me. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, you know, David's a man after God's own heart. Why? Because even in the midst of failing and failing big time, he turns and says, God, forgive me and continue to bring any sin in my life to my attention that I might honor you and walk in righteousness. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. Uh, he shall live. This is the hope that we have. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? By my very nature, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. I've shared this before, but it's just a, an amazing testimony that uh, a gentleman shared at a conference one time. Uh, Bill, he was with Billy Graham, and Billy Graham, you know, passed away a couple of years ago. So this was just before he passed away, and they were wrapping up their meeting, and Billy Graham said, will you pray for me? And, and his response was, no, Billy Graham, you know, you're Billy Graham. I want you to pray for me. And he said, no, 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 I need you to pray for me. And he said, well, what could I even possibly pray for you for? And he said, pray that I finish well. And he said, what do you mean? Like, you know, like everybody respects the fact that you're, you're elderly now, your, your ministry is coming to an end, you're preparing to go and be with the Lord. And he said, should I fall and sin, even in this final moment, that is exactly what people will remember. That's the legacy that will be there. It will undo everything else. I need to finish the race strong. 
And that births from right here, that you can live your life righteously, but if you turn to wickedness, that is what you will be known for. And there are consequences for that. So how do you respond to, to what you do or do not want to hear? How do you respond to that? I think we all respond differently, but I think it's worth asking that question internally and saying, how is it that I respond to the things that I do want to hear? And how is it that I respond to the things that I do not want to hear? He wraps up this thought here and he says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? I know that like the, 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 the logic of this right here in the moment is like, oh yeah, I would never tell God that his ways are not just, right? But I think it's more about the fact that as a society, we would not say it to his face. Like as long as we feel like God is not right there in the moment, we absolutely can be guilty of, of allowing or projecting our own way of doing things onto God and then what do we end up with? We end up with this language. And, and, and I, I heard a, uh, a, a, a pastor uh, a couple of weeks ago say, say, I can't tell you why the Bible says this. I just choose not to believe it. And you might think right now, like, oh, that's crazy. Who would say that? Well, I'm going to tell you that keep your eyes open and your ears let he who sees see and those who want to hear hear, keep them open. You're going to hear more and more of that. Because the, the word of God is not socially acceptable in current culture. Whether it is on gender identity or the way we view sexuality or the way we view abortion or the way that we view interacting with people, it is not culturally acceptable. And you are going to hear more and more who are leaders within the church who will begin to compromise and say, well, I just choose not to believe it. And they'll have some really clever ways to undermine the text. And you'll have to make that own decision on where you land. But I'll tell you, for me, I'm going to continue to believe the Word of God as we have it provided to us because I believe God is capable of preserving and providing His Word to us. And he says that, that this idea that God is not just, that that is not fair, that that's not what it really should look like is one that prevailed 2,600 hundred plus years ago and I'm preparing for all this stuff and I'm thinking parts of this just feel like it's just being it's just written for right here right now today and I and it just keeps blowing my mind that these were the things that the society was navigating at that time that a group of people would ultimately just say then God's not just if that's how God does it, then he's not just. When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that, that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. God reiterates the point because he knows that this is a struggle for them. He reiterates it here in the word because he knows that this is not as simple as just Pastor Jim getting up and saying it and some people amening. We really need to dive into this and really do some heart evaluation. We need to internalize the word of God and see how it applies to us here today. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And this is what it boils down to. The people defined just differently than God does. And I, I've, I say this regularly, not just here today. We have an issue with the redefining of words. 
and we can both be using the exact same word, and because of the fact that we translate or the created definition for those, this different, we can be saying completely opposite things. And that's what's going on here. This is a, this is a they do not define just the same way that God defines just. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. This is the hope of it all, is repent. That's the good news. We can repent. I can repent, you can repent, and we can stand before God, faultless, blameless, righteous, and gain life. Cast away from your from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you choose that? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. In closing, I want to ask you a few questions. Homework for the week. Can I go against the word of the Lord and fix my own problems? Chapter 17, Zedekiah is in a, in a contract, he's in a covenant, and he decides to go against it. He decides to break it, to fix his own issues. It didn't work out well for him. Secondly, does God have you where you are? Whether you are comfortable or uncomfortable, this is a question that we need to be asking ourselves am I in the place that God would have me right now or am I in my own place? And then finally, can you accept God's actions, God's judgments, God's decisions? Are you capable of that? And if you're not, listen, there's no, I'm not trying to heap guilt on you. I, I'm, I'm saying like, maybe if you feel like I can't accept this portion of, of who God is, then maybe that's a, a good place to start praying for understanding. To move from somebody who hears the parable and says, whatever, to start being the person that's digging in and saying, okay, God, help me gain understanding in this moment. Let's stand to our feet as we close. Listen, there's a lot of content here. I'm teaching on midweek and putting it online on Wednesday, and then you can watch it at your convenience. We also have a study guide, uh, verse by verse, with my notes in it that you can download. Uh, sometimes we're able to get that up in time to be in the description, but it's always made available as a direct download link on Facebook. Uh, and if you don't have Facebook and you want it, let me know. We're going to continue to be in this, and I believe God is going to continue to minister and speak to us and use us. And I, my hope and my prayer is that God is going to use you, that God is going to equip you to be a voice in, in the places that you're doing life. Because God is calling people to repentance. It'd be easy for me to say God's calling our nation to repentance. But, but the truth is, is God is really calling individuals to repentance. He is, he is calling the people that are sitting in here today, that are watching online. He's calling all of us to repentance. And then he's calling us to be light in the darkness. So that others will know him. Now, I want to pray for you, and then we're going to dismiss. If you're in here and you need prayer, at the end of service, we have a prayer team in the back, and they are wearing masks. The Scripture says if you're sick in body, if you're in need, go to the elders of the church. Allow them to lay hands on you. Uh, we want to offer that. If you're not comfortable and all you want to do is just make your prayer known, we have prayer cards. There's no, again, judgment from us. We just want to be a family that is taking our needs to the Lord. So right now, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're watching online, if you wouldn't mind pausing what you're doing for just a moment, just out of respect for what God's doing in hearts. And if you're in here today and you're like, you know what, that's me. I'm that person who uh, is pointing their finger at everybody else and, and not allowing myself to be accountable. I want to pray for you. If you're in here today and you say, well, you know what? I was walking in righteousness, I was following God, but today there's just a lot of sin in my life and I need, to, I need to cast that off and repent and come back to Him. I wanna pray for you. 
And if you're in here, if you're watching online and you're the person who has been in wickedness, you, you, you know who Jesus is, but you really here today need to make him Lord of your life so that your, your sins can be forgiven, I want to pray for you. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, whatever it is that you're bringing to the Lord right now, I just want you to surrender it and declare him as king. Jesus, we declare that you are king. Right now, you are king in a realm that transcends where we're at, but we understand that you are bringing the kingdom of heaven even here actively now. You are establishing these things, and you will rule and reign as our king. We come to you, and we repent for our sins. We repent for our transgressions, and we ask, Father, that you would forgive us, that you would seek out wickedness in our own lives and make it known that we could walk in righteousness Father, I pray for those who are resistant to this message. They're resistant to coming to you and accepting your judgment and your actions and your thoughts and your word. Lord, that today their heart would be softened and that they would receive you. For those that do not know you, they need to make that decision today. Father, we pray right now that you move into their lives and you transform them, that they would be renewed, that they would know you. And we rejoice with them here today. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. We ask these things.